Hello and welcome to Gamification Unlocked, a show about real games and how we can use their techniques for learning and change. I'm Brandon Carper, a training designer. And I'm Chad Hapley. I work with user experience on the web and in libraries. And this week, Chad, I'd like us to go back to our Halcyon college days. Do you remember playing the game Tekken 3 in college? That was most of our freshman year, I think. (laughs) Yeah, we would go to dinner at Hicks Dining Hall. Oh, wow. Okay, I'm getting like wavy-eyed flashbacks here going on. Which was just composed entirely of rectangles. It was a rectangular room with these (laughs) long rectangular tables like it was from the the dining hall of Beowulf or something, dimly lit. (laughs) Your rectangular trays. Yeah. Uh, If we were lucky, they would be serving chicken tenders that night. Although after I left college, I decided I had taken for granted all-you-can-eat buffets three times a day. (laughs) Right, you know, you kind of get used to it after a while. Whatever, I could eat whatever I want, but I won't. So we'd walk back to our college dormitory hall, and then I think we just had camp chairs set up in my room. Yeah, like those folding chair things, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then we would play Tekken 3 on the PlayStation, the original PlayStation. Oh, wow. This is, wow. Okay. Oh, I'm old. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, And it was, I think, you, me, a few other people, and then our friend Brian. Uh Uh-huh. So, I I owned the game, so like a jerk, I would practice on my own sometimes. It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> not a jerk, that's, you know, it's making use of your property. Uh, so, Tekken is a street fighting game, like uh, like Street Fighter, where you each control a person and you punch and kick each other until your life goes down, and uh, one person wins. So, mm-hmm. I got really good with this character, Nina, who had this kick combo that once she started, it was difficult to, to get out of, and I would just do it all the time, and people would get really upset. <clears throat> yep. Yeah, I am I remember these things clearly. I don't remember a lot about like what I learned in college, but I remember this. <laughs> Somehow. So, our, our friend Brian, who I think started to take it a bit personally... One day, you know, weeks weeks after we started playing the game, he picked this one character. I think his name was Paul. And Paul had this move. It was a punch that had a really extremely slow, long wind-up. But if he managed uh-huh. to hit you with it, it would take off, like, half your health bar. <laughs> yep. So we all made fun of him for picking this character. And I started my match against him, and we both got a few hits off each other. And... Then I started into my combo, and he dodged at just the right moment and started his wind-up punch at just the right moment, and... (laughs) The rest (laughs) is history. (laughs) Hit me in the face, knocked me out, won the match. (laughs) There may have been some celebration involved. Yeah, then Brian threw his controller down and ran up and down our dormitory hall screaming, it's over, it's all over. (laughs) (laughs) The king is dead, long live the king. And now Brian is a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) There's a deep lesson to be taken from that. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure there's something. Well, Chad, I'm glad you asked, because Uh this week we're talking about metagaming. Yes. So... For our definition of metagaming, I'm going to use something from the book Game Design Fundamentals by Salen and Zimmerman. 
as quoted in an article from the Association of Computing Machinery called Towards a Typology of Metagames. Well, that was a mouthful, wasn't it? I'm, I'm awake still. Anyway, so they say metagaming refers to the relationship between the game and outside elements, including everything from player attitude and play styles to social reputations and social contexts in which the game is played. So the metagame is everything outside of, for example, Tekken, where you just move and press buttons to fight each other. It's thinking about who you're playing and what that person has done in the past and how big of a jerk they were and how likely they are <laughs> to be a jerk in the future. So would metagaming include things like um, like reading Nintendo Power back in the day or strategy guides and that kind of stuff? Well, that's a really interesting question. You've totally thrown me off guard because... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> because I was only thinking of metagaming in terms of multiplayer games and having an awareness of the other people playing. Is metagaming something that exists in a single-player experience? Because it was possible for me to know more about a game than I would have if I was just playing it by myself. Right, right. I don't know that reading Nintendo Power, for example, for, for hints on how to do something, that sounds more like just learning more about the game itself. What if, so I remember I had a strategy guide for Final Fantasy VII uh, back in the day on the original PlayStation that would tell me, like, which combination of weapons were most effective together. Maybe. Maybe. I'm, I think I think in my mind, if I, if I were to metagame <laughs> a single player, let's, let's take Final Fantasy, for example. Okay. So Final Fantasy would do this really annoying thing sometimes where you would fight a boss and you were meant to lose the boss fight. So you would end up using all of your expensive items to keep yourself alive. Oh, yeah. And then the game meant for you to die, and you got resurrected because it was part of the story. And that would just cheese me off to no end. Yeah, I'm right there with you. But then I think as I got more experience playing Final Fantasy games, I started to recognize when the game was putting me in an unwinnable situation. And I knew that's what its plan was, so I would just not use any items and just wait for the game to kill me so I could get on with my fantasy life. The most efficient possible path forward. Yeah, I think that would be that would be metagaming for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I I can see I can see your your approach as well to the metagame. Hmm. Well, sorry to derail you, but that just popped into my head. Other examples of metagaming: uh, Dungeons and Dragons. So the very popular series of pen and paper role-playing games that have spawned a number of clones, they're basically improv acting with dice rolls, if you haven't played one or seen one before. Mm -hmm. And in this game, metagaming is usually used in a a derogatory sense. So what'll sometimes happen in this game is there's there's one person called the Dungeon Master who is writing the story for the game and he plays the parts of all the monsters and he's the guy deciding or girl deciding what monsters you're going to encounter in what order and so on and the players are supposed to be acting as if they are their actual characters so they are a fantasy knight and fantasy land and he doesn't know all the stats of all the monsters in his world but the player does, because maybe the player has read the book the monster is coming out from, and he <laughs> he knows the monster is is weak against uh, ice candy. <clears throat> mm-hmm. 
So he feeds the monster ice candy and the monster dies, even though his character didn't know that that was the trick. So that's what metagaming is usually in Dungeons and Dragons and not usually a good thing. So would, so you're essentially metagaming would be breaking the wall between your character and yourself. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're drawing in things from the outside that you're not really supposed to in the, the spirit of the game. Mm-hmm. So until recently, whenever I heard of metagaming, I kind of thought of, of something like that. Recently, I watched a documentary on another game that I haven't played, actually, called League of Legends. Oh, I played that one time. Oh, really? How'd you do? Uh, not well. Not well. <laughs> not well at all. Yeah, this this is kind of a genre of game that it snuck up on me. Like I didn't I didn't know that it was rising and all of a sudden it is apparently one of the most popular genres of game in the world. So League of Legends is called a a MOBA, M O B A stands for multiplayer online battle arena. And there's a 5 versus 5 competition where each person picks a champion from a list of over 100 champions. Each one has special abilities like absorbing damage or dealing close-up damage or dealing far away damage or sneaking around and stabbing people in the back. And your goal is basically to destroy your enemy's base before they can destroy yours. So that five versus five is five real people versus five real people? As far as I know, I think when you're first starting out, you can choose uh, bots to play against. Gotcha. But I'm not, not an expert. There's a large organized play scene. Uh, the 2014 World Championship in Seoul, South Korea, had a sold-out attendance of 40,000. Took place in their, yeah, took place in their World Cup stadium, playing for a, a top prize of one million dollars. Wow. Uh, if you want to learn more, you can see the All Work All Play documentary on Netflix. Yeah, South Korea has a fascinating programming scene in general. Yeah, yeah, and people from all around the world compete. Mm-hmm. The metagaming part comes in because each team can ban up to three champions that they don't want to play against in that particular game. So you mm-hmm. can pick maybe the three most powerful characters in the game and say that no one can play them during that particular game. Then both teams can do that. Yes, so a total of six characters that can't be used Mm -hmm. and an interesting story is that in 2014 so that this game is popular enough that there are teams that kind of have transfers of players from other teams (laughs) (laughs) so a north american team transferred in a star player from europe and the teams he played against knew all the champions that he preferred to use so those teams would use all three of their bands against him in particular leaving him to pick from champions he was less familiar with. So they knew he would be enough of a uh, factor in the game that they tried to eliminate him in advance as much as they could. Right, exactly. So again, here's another example of people using knowledge outside of the nuts and bolts of the game to actually win the the competition. But So would you say that's unfair in this case? Whereas with the Dungeons & Dragons example, that's something that is, like you said, is generally frowned upon. How is this viewed? in the community if you know oh i think it's it's probably totally fair right you uh when you're in a competition for a million dollars i'm pretty sure that it's totally okay to do some research on your team just like you probably would in mm-hmm. sports you know 
Yeah, most likely. <laughs> in the world of esports, you probably do research and act accordingly, and that's a fine, I imagine. Yeah, and it seems more baked into the rules here than in Dungeons and Dragons. Like, if the rules of the tournament are you can ban three champions, of course you're going to apply some sort of logic in those choices. Right, certainly. And then an example from the games that I'm more familiar with, uh, collectible card games, such as Magic the Gathering is the most popular one and the most long-standing. There's also Hearthstone, which is a virtual collectible card game set in the world of world of warcraft (laughs) yes where you open virtual packs of cards and you pay money for imaginary pieces of cardboard totally Uh, not the stock market at all (laughs) the one that i play more often is called android netrunner where it's set in a near future it's called a, a cyberpunk universe akin to maybe blade runner or the Matrix, where there are these people called runners who hack into corporations who have these unnaturally long reaches into the fates of human society. Is that officially tied into Shadowrun at all? Or is it just a kind of a spiritual? No, it's just it's just the same type of universe. So okay. I think they all have their roots in William Gibson's Neuromancer. Yeah. And uh, one branch went off to Shadowrun, and I think that involves orcs and has more traditional fantasy elements tied into mm-hmm. the cyberpunk milieu, whereas Netrunner is more realistic and uh, okay. not as much fantasy going on, just more science fiction. Gotcha. And all of these Netrunner games are, are Netrunner, Hearthstone, Imagine the Gathering. These are all one-on-one games that involve building a deck in advance to play against your opponent. That's one of the main draws of the game is everyone can customize within a particular set of rules what they'll be bringing to the table. And what your opponent brings can be a complete and total mystery. And uh, as you progress in the game, the way you build your deck depends on what you think your opponent is going to build into their deck. And uh, in the game of Netrunner, there's this concept of of silver bullets, where there's this one card, it's really good if your opponent's going to do this one thing, but if they don't do that one thing, then it's just taking up space and it's a waste of your time. Or if you don't get it at the right time in the game. Right, exactly. So for example, in Netrunner, one way for the corporation to win is uh, through what's called meat damage. (laughs) I hate when the meat is damaged. (laughs) Meat referring to your Netrunner's body in quote-unquote meat space. Uh, So basically that means they, they, they kill you. And it's not a very popular strategy depending on where you're playing the game. And there's one card that basically gives you armor against this. And if you're worried about your opponent playing meat damage, you play that one card out and it protects you against it. But if they don't play that type of deck, then you've just wasted space that you could have been using for something else. And so to play games like this competitively, you need to spend a lot of time online analyzing what the best decks are, running your decks through practice matches against those type of decks, and adjusting accordingly. So a tremendous amount of (laughs) research goes into what pieces of cardboard you're going to bring to your board game shop to win other pieces of cardboard. And any hobby can be reduced to a ridiculous level if you really want to dive into it. Well, that's true. Thank you, Chad, for rising to my 
defense of myself. <laughs> Anytime. What you'll sometimes see very interestingly is that the very top players will put in less powerful, unpopular cards because other players aren't expecting to see them. So when you get to like the national and the world championships, everyone knows maybe the top four or five decks. And the way that you stand out then is by putting in cards that are technically less powerful, but so unexpected that everyone else's decks won't be tuned to deal with them. So they're considered too ridiculous or too unlikely to even bother preparing against. Right, right. Because a lot of the game is bluffing and guessing what is face down on your opponent's side of the table. And if you make a wrong guess at the, the wrong time, you can you can lose the game. Mm-hmm. So uh, uncertainty and staying one step ahead are crucial. Anyway, so the article I referenced earlier called uh, Towards a Typology of Metagames, it talks about three different levels of the metagame, the greater level, the local level, and the immediate level. So they, they call the, the greater level the quote-unquote sum of large-scale competitive trends. So in Netrunner, you're looking at what the best players all around the world are doing, what they're doing in the UK, what they're doing in the US, what they're doing in in Europe. And you can look up which decks are winning local and regional tournaments and find out who the, say, last year's champions, what what decks they're probably going to be bringing to the world or the the national championships. And that knowledge determines what the overall makeup of the, the world championships will usually be. Moving down to the the local level of the metagame, these are trends that develop among repeated play between a a small group of of players. So, for example, I meet a small group of friends every week to play at a a Wegmans grocery store. Jealous. (laughs) Uh, One of my friends, for example, was running a lot of traps in his deck. So I was talking about how there are face-down cards, and if you try to reveal a face-down card on your opponent's side of the board, and it's a trap that can be a big problem for you. But traps are really uncommon uh, in this stage of the game, so usually it's better just to run into them and deal with whatever happens and use the protection against the traps for something else in your, your deck. Mm-hmm. There's a card that actually lets you see what the, the trap is. It's called Infiltration, but hardly anyone uses it until... I had a friend start playing who started running nothing but traps. <laughs> <laughs> and then I ran into a guy at a at a small tournament where he was running these especially deadly kind of traps where if you ran into one twice, you would basically lose the game. So I started putting this card that no one uses into my deck just to protect myself against these two people that I thought I was going to be playing on a, a regular basis. Do you think that is a conclusion you could have reached without that local uh, level? Is it like if if you've seen it once, would you have picked up on it? Or was it something that took time and repeated contact to realize? Well, it's it's just knowing what cards you're likely to run into. Like, I knew those cards had existed, right? Some Mm -hmm. of them, some of those cards have been around since the beginning of the game. And it wasn't like me developing any more skill in the game necessarily. It was just me making an educated gamble on what I might be running into and and adjusting accordingly. So based on your experience, you knew it was a possibility of what could happen. Right, right. However, however, sometimes 
what'll happen in these local scenes is someone does come up with a new strategy that no one else has seen before, maybe like like you were thinking of. And what'll happen is it'll start out in that local scene and they'll post maybe their deck list to the internet and eventually it'll spread from that local scene till it becomes a part of the, the greater scene that people then have to deal with at that level. Mm, so they bubble up. Right, exactly. Because you'll see, oh, this deck, you know, went undefeated at this regional tournament and everyone's like, oh, I would like to try that. And they all try it. And then, then it takes over what they call the, the meta of the game. And if it's uh, really bad, then they release a card just to deal with <laughs> that strategy. <laughs> <laughs> so are there occurrences where people develop a new trend, something that hasn't been seen before, and purposely try to keep it secret and like unveil it at a national tournament or similar? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I can't, I can't think of an instance of that, honestly. Um, or maybe it's the case that in a collectible card game, you know, there is a finite number of cards you could have in your deck, so maybe everything has been seen at one point or another, and it's just relative popularity rather than something entirely new. Well, that's also a good question. I mean, I've seen decks that are built with all all older cards, like nothing new has come out recently to make this deck possible. It's just that someone happened to run across the combination for the first time, which to me are the most fascinating decks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but and there, I've run into a few people who, you know, will just be talking casually after a tournament about our decks and what we're planning to bring maybe to the next tournament. And most people are pretty open about it, but some people are very, very secretive and <laughs> refuse to discuss anything for fear of me leaking it to the press. <laughs> but uh, as far as I can recall, the you know the guy who's won the world championships, you know the deck that he was going to bring or probably going to bring was pretty well known in advance. Um, and he just brought it. Maybe he would like swap out a couple cards like I was talking about, but by and large it was a known entity. And he would just steamroll people <laughs> regardless. So obviously there's skill involved. It's not just like playing a game of war and flipping things over. Yeah, yeah. I, I often think of it as it's one third planning, one third how you play, and then one third luck. <laughs> so because you can, you know, download the world champions decks and still be awful at it. Yeah, that would be me. <laughs> so, so I talked about the trend bubbling up into the uh, the greater metagame level, but you know all local trends actually start at even a lower level called the immediate metagame, and these are all the extrinsic factors that influence a particular specific game. So a new immediate metagame is created every time you sit down to to play the game. So in Netrunner, again, you have those face-down cards. Sometimes you can protect them, and sometimes you just leave them out there. And maybe they're very valuable, which makes it very easy for them to steal. Maybe they're a trap. So it's kind of a bluffing game. If you play something out unprotected, what the common sense reason would be is that it's not that valuable, and you want the the other guy to try to, to check it. But every once in a while, you'll put down something that is really crucial, and you're betting on him not checking it because why would you put down a crucial thing that's unprotected, right? Like the Mind Princess games. Bride scene. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking of that exactly. <laughs> Never go in, was it with a Sicilian when death is on the line? Yeah, exactly, and they're all poison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so what, 
what some players will do and what I'll do sometimes as well is I might put out a few unimportant, unprotected cards just to see if I'm playing against the type of person who will try to call my bluff. And then if they don't end up calling my bluff, then I'll start playing out cards that are more crucial and leave them unprotected and then capitalize on that later in the game. So I start to get a sense within that particular game if the person I'm, I'm playing against is someone who's going to, you know, call all of my my lies and my my untruths or if they're just going to let me get away with it mm -hmm. and even if i'm playing with someone that i've played with before there's a lot of other factors that that go into it uh it might be that particular deck the person is playing some decks require a lot of setup and they might want to be spending more of their time building up their own side of the board than messing with mine uh, maybe they're just in a particular mood that I can try to judge <laughs> and see if I can, can get away with things. So a lot of things kind of funnel into that very d discreet point in time of what's called the, the immediate metagame. So immediate feeds into local, which then would feed into greater. Right. So Chad, do you have any like similar experiences with this thing that I've rambled on about? <laughs> so I once tried entering a Smash Brothers tournament. Okay. Smash Brothers so, being know, a popular Nintendo game where Mario and Zelda, etc., all fight each other. Sure. Uh, and another game that was uh, big in our, our college rotation, not unlike Tekken. And I I thought I was, was okay. I, you know, I had no delusions of being a national champion out of nowhere. Um, an amazing story like that. But I, I thought I could probably hold my own. I did not realize the depth of <laughs> Smash Brothers competitive play that was out there. And so I was aware maybe of the, you know, I had my immediate metagame, obviously, where I had, you know, known based on playing against you and a handful of other people in college. I had maybe a little bit of um, local also knowledge built on top of that. But then here I was all of a sudden exposed to the greater metagame, where as I learned, there are things like, uh, you know, if a game operates at, what 60 frames a second you might have one oh, frame where you are in, where you are invincible while making a certain attack and there are players who are skilled enough to take advantage of one frame in 60 frames a second as invincibility and there's these crazy things that i was like i know all the moves <laughs> i'm sure i can string them together into a reasonable chance of success uh no i could not at all it was it was possibly the shortest game of smash brothers i've ever played <laughs> <laughs> yeah anytime i even i guess entertain the idea of playing a game competitively i just kind of picture myself walking down that road of i'm going to run to someone who is going to wipe the floor with me <laughs> although <laughs> didn't, didn't you and i take second place in a halo tournament once yeah that was just in our I was just in our small college, though, right? Yeah, that's that was Halo was not even an online game at that point, so I guess there couldn't have been as as much of the different levels of metagame. Yeah, yeah. My other <laughs> one of my other favorite Brian stories involves Smash Brothers, <laughs> where uh, he was about to win. You win Smash Brothers by knocking the guy off the the edge of the board so many times, and he was about to knock me off the board for the final time to to win the game. And there will be these random items that spawn in Smash Brothers and just kind of fall from the sky. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so as Brian like hit my character, I was flying off the screen. I was about to lose the game. A random magic mushroom fell from the sky and yes. just hit me. <laughs> oh, I'd forgotten all about this. <laughs> and just hit me on the head like a one in a million chance. And yep. made me made me large and super strong. I just landed and kicked him and then I won the game. <laughs> yeah, the quickest about face ever. Staying on the Smash Brothers trend, I also I also played in high school against one guy in particular, Dan, who was known uh, if if there was a you know a local level meta game with Dan, it was that he would play as Donkey Kong and he would grab you and jump off the edge of the level. All right, <laughs> and that was he 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 did not play to win; he played to annoy you as much annoy. as possible. That was he he had different goals in mind. Um, I don't know if that's directly applicable to this, but it well it raises weird memories of it. Yeah, it raises the interesting point if the goals of the game can be meta gamed. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he was playing a different game than the rest of us. So all of you listeners at home might be wondering what the heck this has to do with training or anything. Well, there's a term called communities of practice in the <laughs> the training world. Uh, my definition for this is basically a, a group of experts sharing knowledge that isn't written down yet. Uh, there's a really fascinating article around this topic from the Harvard Business Review. So, Chad, you're not the only person who can reference Harvard Business Review articles. Sweet. Welcome to the club. <laughs> it's called Balancing Act, How to Capture Knowledge Without Killing It. Sounds Seems like, like a Poke- goal. <laughs> Sounds like a Pokemon subtitle, now that I think about <laughs> it. <laughs> but the, the article has the quote... <clears throat> Executives who want to identify and foster best practices must pay very close attention to the practices as they occur in reality, rather than as they are represented in documentation or process designs. Otherwise, they will miss the tacit knowledge produced in improvisation, shared through storytelling, and embedded in the communities that form around these activities. So, tacit knowledge is is kind of a, a buzzword in the, the training field for that uh-huh. stuff that you can't really capture in documentation or hasn't been captured yet, or you can't really record in a formal way, even in a, a training session. Well, I'm already seeing the parallels between this and, and metagaming. Aha. Uh, uh-huh. Well, then I've done my job. Well, not yet, because I haven't <laughs> caught up the parallels. <laughs> so they have a really fascinating example I really love when I read actual use cases in these articles because uh-huh. I'll, I'll read so many and they're like, yes, and my theories proved true because I did them with a client who I signed an NDA with and I cannot tell you about them, but it was really sweet, I assure you. Just trust me, I'm not making this up. <laughs> uh, so they give an example from Xerox uh, and their technical support reps. So their reps, you know, they had documentation, they had their technical support processes, and but they also had the knowledge of the, the individual machines they were working with. The article talked about how any single machine may have profound idiosyncrasies. Reps know the machines they work with as shepherds know their sheep. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love everything about that statement. <laughs> So this is basically your your immediate level of the the meta game, right? Just you and that copy machine, I assume. I guess there's other machines Xerox might support. Anyway, well, yeah, but it it was a verb for that, so we'll go with it. 
sure. So just just you and that machine, and the 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 meta game there is what that machine has done to you in the past. <laughs> <laughs> so office space style, right? And I just remembered how when I was a high school teacher, man, I got really good at troubleshooting that darn copy machine on the second floor. <laughs> you you knew the I, idiosyncrasies. I could whip that thing open and pull the papers out of all the right places in seconds. Um, <laughs> things they never teach you in college, but they probably should nope. offer an elective in copy machine repair. Maybe not so much anymore because I'm an old man. Um... Right, and so moving up a bit to the, the local level. So here's another one of my favorite quotes from the article. Although the documentation gives the reps a map, the critical question for them is what to do when they fall off the map, which they do all the time. Oh, I love this. I love this so much. <laughs> this author found a simple answer to that question. When the path leads off the map, the reps go to breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> I d did not expect that. <laughs> so basically what that means is the reps would all meet for breakfast and just share informally their war stories of working with different Xerox machines. Eventually patterns would emerge. Someone would hear something that worked for the machine over there and they would try that on the machine they were working with, or maybe they would come up with a general practice to, to follow. And that was how they would, uh, they would develop their knowledge. So these were not exactly technical manuals that they were pouring through. It was just their accumulated experience. No, it was just, yeah, real world experience wasn't written down anywhere. They would just share it amongst each other and, and grow as technical support representative pa professionals. Passed down from tech to tech in the oral tradition. <laughs> yeah, we have a, a popular world in, word in corporate America called tribal knowledge. Is that something mm. that you've ever used in I've heard it come up your yeah. workplace? It basically means... Yeah, something that is just passed down word to mouth, word to mouth, um, for a long time and never written down. And when the people who are part of that tribe leave, then it's gone forever. It's the Norse, mytho Norse mythology of copier repair. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Although I've been in situations where I felt like this is going to be a really nerdy reference. I apologize to everyone. But you know, like in no, Lord no, embrace it. You know, like in, in Lord of the Rings, how there are all these artifacts from a previous age, like the, the Palantir, which lets you, you know, crystal balls mm -hmm. that let you see, and, you know, the magic rings and so on, which no one really knows how to use anymore. That is these really powerful things that maybe Gandalf the wizard knows, but now Gandalf's gone. So now Frodo's just messing around with a one ring, trying to figure it out. You know, mm -hmm. I've run into things like that on the job so many times. <laughs> Or there's like this proprietary software or some special database that someone made and no one knows how it works anymore. So they, they've developed these superstitious rituals around it where, you know, you have to save things in a certain way or go through this process and you ask why it's done that way. And they say, well, because you have to do it that way or else. Because terrible, terrible things will happen if you don't. Right, right. So anyway, so the <laughs> the parallel here of, of the what the reps are doing sharing around breakfast is you know playing against a small group of, of people for example in the card game that i was describing mm -hmm. so not only are you getting better at the the game by being forced to play against you know different techniques from that small group of people but you're also getting better at playing those particular people so you have you know this skill transferable to other games but also the skill that is just only applicable to those specific players 
but no matter how much you play against that handful of people, it's not going to prepare you for everything that you might see at a national championship or a, a world championship. I now want there to be world championships of copyright repair. <laughs> I don't know. It may have happened at some point. <laughs> so the the article you know, points this out. It says that locally generated fixes and insights circulated pretty efficiently within the small group, but rarely made it beyond. So people in different groups spent time grappling with problems that had already been solved elsewhere. The reps as a whole still didn't know what some reps as a group knew. Which brings us to the da, 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 greater level mm-hmm. of the the Xerox repair metagame. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So Xerox created a database called Eureka to capture this local knowledge. And this is actually kind of relevant to, I think, the SharePoint example you were talking about uh, last week, mm-hmm. Chad. Yeah. So a big problem with information systems is they're either completely top-down or they're completely bottom-up. So if they're top-down, they're just an information dump from the the official experts, maybe the people who, who wrote the software or the people who configured or manufactured the machines telling you how things are supposed to work and ignoring all the information about how they actually work in reality. And then the opposite problem is where everyone is just submitting their own cool tips and tricks that work for them, and it's impossible to sift through all that white noise to find out what's really useful. So there's no way for it to bubble up. Right. So beware of both of those things, Chad. Mm-hmm. Got to find that sweet spot in the middle. <laughs> so the way Eureka solved this was they had an ele- they had elements of both. They when someone submitted a tip, it would be vetted first by some local experts and then by a central review body before being published to everyone. So that way there was some checks and balances on whether something was actually useful. This sounds a lot like they invented peer review for copier repair tips. <laughs> yeah, that's, and I, and uh, I don't, that's a good... I don't, I don't mean that as a derogatory statement. It's just it's an interesting parallel I'm seeing. Yeah, that's, that's a good connection. And I think one of the keys here is that people re- were rewarded by having their name attached to the tip not by being paid, which they consider. Oh, that's at one peer point. review again. Yeah. Yeah. So one of my favorite TED Talks is from Dan Pink, where he uh, explores the idea that people at work are motivated by three things autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And he talks about how people's salaries need to be at a certain level uh, to make them comfortable in their lives and to make them feel they're being compensated fairly but then any further and it and to use it as a carrot any further than that tends to inhibit creativity and inhibit performance sometimes have you seen that ted talk chad i have not but now i want to go check it out yeah it's uh it's very fascinating and uh and i think as well if xerox had gone the route of handing out cash prizes for good tips i feel like that would have increased the amount of bad tips sure. being submitted because people are just trying to win the cash prize. But when people are submitting them to gain reputation, well, their their name is on the line because that's the prize they're playing for. So they're going to vet their own tips oh, yeah. more strongly than, than they would otherwise. Yeah, otherwise, if it was cash-based, you'd be essentially flooding it with as many as possible, hoping that one of them would pay off. Sure, sure, exactly. And the article actually says how a one rep 
at a regional meeting received a standing ovation because of <laughs> oh wow <laughs> his machine tips <laughs> king of the copy repair <laughs> so this is like we were talking about in in netrunner where you can go to the forums online and see all the decks that the the high level players are using so that you can you can refine your own place so you can see the results of all that that local knowledge bubbling up mm-hmm. my uh I'm suddenly remembering my brother worked in Xerox Copier Repair for about two years after college. And oh, yeah? Now I want to go ask him about it. Uh, one story he would tell was that there was a copier they had to support that was on a nuclear submarine. And it, it like started emitting smoke, which is a problem in a contained <laughs> environment of of a nuclear submarine. And the, um, the the Navy called and said, hey, our copier had a problem. They said, all right, well, and they, they were working through all these solutions. And then it turned out that the Navy had already thrown it in the ocean. <laughs> I guess, tell me about the purpose of having a, a copy machine on a nuclear submarine. Yeah, I've got a lot of questions about this scenario. <laughs> but I know if there's a moral from that story, uh, your community of practice doesn't mean much if the copier is at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> words to live by <laughs> yes <laughs> so so takeaways uh <laughs> <laughs> sorry i've derailed us again well be, beyond the very important life lesson of you cannot <laughs> fix a copy machine <laughs> that has been hurled from a nuclear summary uh yeah so when i when i very when i first started playing netrunner very back at the very beginning it was just my wife me the rule book and two starting decks and uh words really cannot describe how much of a a gulf there is between that really immediate environment at the beginning and the knowledge of someone that is say you know sitting at the the semi-final tables at the the world championships and i'm sure anyone who's played a a competitive sport or board game or card game can can kind of relate i feel like it's it's more pronounced in games where there's not as much physical activity because you can more clearly see all the the cognitive gulf that exists between you and other people whereas with you know sports there's a lot of physical conditioning that comes into play mm-hmm. yeah but, it's more on the mental plane right although you know there's cognitive aspects to the physical sports as well of course anyway so you know it's between that first game and the you know someone at the the world semifinals there's still just two people at a table with some tokens cardboard or plastic and about 45 cards in each of their decks but the people you know those championships have an incredibly deep knowledge of card combinations and strategies you know which card combinations are popular in general which combinations are played by the region their opponent is from which combinations are favored by their opponent in particular what cards they have in their own decks that can counter the strategies they're likely to face what the cost-benefit analysis is of playing in defense of certain strategies and just letting other ones happen. And they have to process all that information and adjust their play style accordingly within usually 70 minutes. Wow. (laughs) And all of that knowledge is the result of experience cycling from that immediate level to the local level to the greater level and, and back down. And if all of this skill development is required for a game that ultimately is just for fun because no one plays Netrunner for money. There are no cash prizes. (laughs) Not even at the national level? Not even at the national level, at least not officially. 
uh, shouldn't organizations encourage the development of similar communities on more important topics <laughs> than card games about hackers and <laughs> in the near future? I don't know. I think that I think that's relevant. That's important. Right. Well, what's fascinating is that people who play games will organize their own communities, <laughs> you know, of their mm-hmm. of their own volition. In fact, the company who publishes Netrunner has occasionally tried to strike down some of the community-run sites on the game, but people keep pressing to come together and and share their knowledge and become better together. Now, people who play games will often do that on their own, but often an organization will need to provide some processes and tools and and, recogni- and recognition to to get things going like like Xerox did. Uh, do you think Xerox, or did you see anything about where they drew inspiration from for that process? Do you think they looked at, um, I mean, so you say, obviously, this could be applied to more important things than gaming communities, but do you think they looked at gaming communities? Like, is that the purpose, maybe, that more hobbyist-level communities serve is as a place to develop these techniques and, and tools? That's a good question. I'm not sure of the, I guess, the intellectual heritage of that idea. They they didn't, I'm fairly certain they didn't come up with it, you know, out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, communities of practice is an, is an idea that's been around for a while. I guess mm-hmm. I could go research maybe for a future episode, you know, where exactly that, you know, that idea came from originally. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's things that they referenced uh, that existed beforehand. Mm-hmm. But what what they did was you know they they were able to to tap into that natural drive for people to to come together and share you know and if you're listening and you're in charge of you know knowledge management or training at your company you know just just be aware that people have this natural desire to share tips and tricks on their job and if people can do it for a car game they can do it for you know processing forms for you know servicing your organization's machines or software or relating to your organization's customers you just have to give them that that forum and that little extra boost of motivation to get them to to do it and then capture that knowledge and and vet it so it becomes a formal knowledge that everyone can benefit from that might be the key point i think i mean you look at systems like uh do do you use reddit at all yeah i browse it occasionally yeah, so the basic idea is people submit things and could be about any kind of community of practice, really, and they get upvoted or downvoted, and people essentially get points for being a submitter of good stuff. And those points don't really mean anything, but people like live their lives for, uh, what do they call the system, karma, mm-hmm. of, for having a high karma ranking. So there's there's got something inherent to humanity, I think, that we like making our numbers go up and getting recognition attached to our names for expertise. Oh, sure. Yeah, definitely. Never underestimate numbers going up uh, besides mm-hmm. someone's name. <laughs> everything's made up and the points don't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Whose lines it anyway? Yes. Yep. <laughs> uh, one book I've read recently on uh, the another fancy term for communities of practice is, is knowledge management, which deals more, I think, with, in the particular aspect of 
gathering together knowledge within your organization, whereas communities of practice as a term can kind of span multiple organizations for a particular field. Anyway, the book's called Designing a Successful Knowledge Management Strategy by Stephanie Barnes and Nick Milton, and it kind of just gives you an overview of all the different things you might have to take into account when you plan a knowledge management strategy, including including the change management and the setting of expectations and the, the reinforcement and support like we were talking about last week. Wow, that's a little bit everything. Yeah. Let me leave you with this last quote from the Xerox article we were talking about throughout the episode. In one case, an engineer in Brazil was about to replace a problematic high-end color machine at a cost of about $40,000 for a disgruntled customer. Experimenting with a prototype of Eureka, he found a tip from a Montreal technician that led him to replace a defective 50-cent fuse instead. In all, Eureka is estimated to have saved the corporation $100 million. That is an amazing success story. Amazing. So, you've been listening to Gamification Unlocked. I'm Brandon Carper. And I'm Chad Hayfley. Please support us by rating us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. You can find us on Twitter at Unlocking Games and on the web at unlockinggames.com. If you have a minute, feel free to send us a tweet or leave us a comment letting us know what you thought of the episode. And if you have any knowledge management stories that you would like to share, either successful or not successful. Until next time, it's your move.